0: So I want you to think this morning about your siblings. And I want you to think about birth order. So the question that I want you to think about is, what was your birth order in your family? Were you first, middle, baby, last? And upon reflection now, what did that mean to you? Okay, so what was your birth order in your family? And what difference did it make kind of in the way that you saw your family dynamics with your siblings? Okay, so that's the question. Talk about your birth order, where you were, where you showed up in the line. Uh, and if you're an only child, you can talk about that experience of what it must have been like to be an only. Okay? Okay. If I can call your attention, just so that we could, because you could talk about this forever, I'm sure. And if any of you need counseling after these experiences have been brought up, we have some counselors in the room. Um, so raise your hand if you were a firstborn. Oldest. Right. Okay? Somebody shout out what it's like to be the firstborn in one word. Hey? Chores. <laughs> Chores. Okay? Who's a middle child? Middle child. Right? Well, what's it like to be a middle child in one word? Peacemaker. Oh, that's a good one. Anything else? Hey? All the blame. Okay. I've heard someone t- say the word invisible. <laughs> invisible. What about the youngest? Anyone in the room the youngest? Right, okay. Give me one word for the youngest. Spoiled. <laughs> is, that from a, is that from the youngest child or from the mother? <laughs> Hand-me-downs. Hand-me-downs, yes, that's right. So there are all these different experiences of being kind of where you are in the birth order, right? And the only child. Give me one word for the only child. Lonely. 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 Oh, that's uh, yeah. So families are very complex, aren't they? All of our families are complex, and so it isn't kind of universal. One question I didn't ask because we do have some sibling units in the room is, what does it mean to be the favorite? <laughs> Because then you might have a little bit of an argument over what that looks like. Um, So I'll use my own family. So I grew up with one brother, a little brother, but I grew up in a extended family unit where my mother had five brothers and sisters who lived within about 10 or 15 minutes of us. And so growing up, there was always, you know, five or six or 10 cousins, first cousins around. And I have two first cousins that we were all born in the same year, so... Um, my mother's brother, and my mother's youngest sister, um, they were all you know expecting children September, October, November of the same year so we're only a month or two apart and we kind of grew up together as brothers and that meant that my my biological brother and I who's four years younger than I we didn't even like want to have anything to do with each other so because we just had completely different worlds But I do remember, and maybe this is a bit of culture, but growing up in my family and in my culture, if you were the firstborn of your family unit, it meant that you did all of the hard work and that you were expected to, you know, you were the person that your parents practiced parenting on. And by the time that the youngest comes around, depending on how many are in between, it is often the case that... (laughs) That they give up, that's right, that parents give up, that they go, oh, do whatever you want, as long as I'm not, you know, as long as, as, long as you don't come knocking on, you know. And so by the time my little brother came around, and we were, you know, kind of mid-childhood, I remember my mother saying, look, as long as nobody's bleeding and nobody has, you know, the, the police aren't at the door, I don't care what you do. And as we became teenagers, it was even more pronounced. My, I mean, I had to do all these things. I had to get a part-time job at a pizza place so that I could pay for my car insurance and all this stuff when I got my driver's license. My brother got a used pickup truck in the driveway for his 16th birthday. And I was like, who are these people? Who are these people? I heard a comedian a few weeks back talking about the fact that he and his little sister have, are 10 years apart. And one of the things he quipped, he said, you know, my little sister's 10 years younger than me. And apparently she was raised by her best friends. <laughs> Meaning that she could do anything she wanted. She could get away with anything. The point of this is just to say that as we read this story from Joseph, um, the Joseph narrative, it's just one in a long line of stories that Genesis tells about family about how tricky family can be, about how tricky sibling relationships can be. And you know, siblings can either be your best companions and your best friends growing up, or for some people they end up being the people that understand us the least and the people that we fight with the most, or the people that can push our buttons the easiest because they know exactly which buttons to push. And our story this morning is one of those stories of sibling rivalry. And when I was young, especially in our early teenage years, my brother and I, we fought, physically fought, incessantly. It made my mother crazy. And, of course, now we're, we're really, you know, we, we really appreciate each other and we really like each other. Um, but we're not as close as my mother would like, and she thinks it's because we fought. But it's just because, honestly, we're so different. But Genesis tells um, a number of stories about siblings that don't get on well. You know, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, and, of course, this morning, Joseph and all of his brothers um, and Joseph's story, of course, I think is one of the best stories in all of the Bible. Dare I say, it's the stuff that Broadway musicals are made of. It includes ideas of betrayal and sex and political intrigue, family dysfunction, famine, slavery, and of course, prison. These are all, all the makings of a Shakespearean drama here uh, from thousands of years ago. And his story is once, at once true to our experience in life about uh, human relationships and how flawed and how difficult they can be. But it's also messy and gritty and truthful and it is all about this idea of rivalry. Um, so for those of you who might not know the story and I'm, I'm I just want to be aware that not all of us kind of you know have seen Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and can uh, recite the, the um, songs by heart. But Joseph is actually only 17 years old when this story commences and he's one of 12. One of 12. Um, and it's interesting because my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, were one of 12 and one of 13. Yeah. Can you, they were Catholic, so <laughs> that's where that came from. Um, but one day, um, it, Jacob, who is um, the father of these 12, uh, who's one of these uh, patriarchs in Israel's uh, story, we're told that actually Joseph is Jacob's favorite. So he's not only is he kind of in the birth order, kind of down towards the end, he's youngish, but he's also the favorite. And of course, that means that his brothers are incredibly jealous of him. And Jacob um, gives Joseph this, this technicolor dream coat, this, this coat that's sewn from different cloths, and it's so beautiful and amazing. And his brothers become very jealous of it. And so they decide to take it. And uh, they decide to, uh, while they're out tending the flocks, they decide to beat him up, take his coat, and throw him into a pit to die. Uh, But then when there's um, a caravan of slave traders coming down the road, one of them has the idea, well, let's not leave him to die, let's just sell him into slavery because that seems more reasonable. And um, so they bloody the coat and they take it back to, to the parents and they say, he's been killed by wild animals, and they tell the parents that he's died. Joseph, of course, the main thing that we need to know about him is that he's resilient and he always lands on his feet and he does very well for himself when he's sold into slavery in the land of Egypt and he rises to power as Pharaoh's household manager. Uh, Some things happen and he ends up finding himself in prison himself. He gets thrown in prison and, but while he's in prison, he's always, he's a dreamer. Joseph is a dreamer. He's an idealist. And so he has this ability to interpret dreams. And Pharaoh has this dream, and he can't figure it out. And there's this guy in this prison called Joseph, and he has this ability to, to interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh goes, and he rightly gets his dreams interpreted by Joseph. And it's about the food supply and how there's a famine on its way. And basically he predicts that there's a famine coming, and Pharaoh makes him the person in charge for make sure, making sure that there's enough food stored up. So when we next hear of Joseph's brothers now, they're basically out tending their flocks. There's a huge famine that's flowed from Egypt into Palestine. They're in Palestine tending their flocks, and they have to go basically hat in hand begging for food in Egypt because they've heard that's where food is. And of course, when they show up, who do they meet but Joseph, and he's the person in charge of the granary and all the food and meting it out to people. And again, through a series of very in, uh, a ser- series of very interesting events, we figure out that his brothers don't recognize him. There's all of this really Hollywood intrigue, you know. It's mistaken identity. It's concealment. Um, there's you know he manufactures their imprisonment. He um, basically sends them away with the money that they thought they had spent on grain. It's back in their in, back in their purse on their hip, and he then he puts a a, a rare piece of um, Uh, a a special cup, um, so it looks like they're stealing something and then they get into prison and in order to get themselves out of prison, he basically negotiates that they have to sell the youngest brother, Benjamin, the baby, into slavery. And so the story really, as it's building, 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 is about revenge. It's about getting even. It's about, you know, um, it's about revenge, rivalry and revenge. And it seems to be tracking. Along those lines, uh, as many stories in the Bible do. But listen to what happens next. Um, This is from the the story that Jill read out this morning. So that Joseph could no longer control himself before all who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me, so that no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loud that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So, so dismayed were they at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me, he said. I am your brother, Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve life. And then there's this beautiful piece at the end of the story where they reconcile and in one translation it's this beautiful um, poetic way of saying as they embrace each other that they wept these men these these you know these Jewish men who are who never run in public who don't show emotions it says that they wept on each other's neck it's so detailed this this picture of intimacy so up until now in the story, the story tracks right along with our normal expectations of human relations. It's about being done wrong, and it's about getting the opportunity to kind of turn the screws on those who've, who've done you wrong. But notice where God, literally the word God shows up for the first time in the story. It's here, where Joseph invokes the name of God in saying, God sent me before you to preserve Life. The story that's supposed to be about revenge ends up becoming a story about forgiveness and a story about reconciliation. If you look around our world and you take this idea of the family to a larger, you know, if you enlarge it, uh, you realize that our world is inundated with rivalry, it's inundated with, with violence, it's inundated with conflict. All you have to look, I mean, look at the places that are still tinderboxes, places where conflict can just turn on a dime. Places like Northern Ireland, Ukraine and Russia, who, you know, a hundred of years ago would have been understood to be the same people speaking the same language, sharing almost all the same customs in some way. North and South Korea, Sudan and South Sudan, these arbitrary barriers between people. You realize that these are places where children are born into conflict and that they are born into situations where they're meant to not get on with people and they don't know why. They're meant to take on conflicts that they did not create. You look around and they see that people have been fighting for so long that sometimes they even forget what they started fighting about in the first place. Walter Brueggemann, who's a very good Old Testament uh, commentator, says in Joseph's life, if his life had only been about his own private story, that he could work out according to his loves and his hates, he would have been justified in killing his brothers, for he owed them a bit of retaliation and a bit of getting even. But he doesn't do that, because he does not act out of his own private inclination. Joseph, who is a man of faith, takes a second hard look at his life, He is willing to host the hidden, inscrutable, and unresolved purpose of God for his life that is beyond his control. He is willing to trust that there is a larger purpose being acted out in him and through him, which he must honor and to which he must respond, even if it means denying his first raw inclination of anger and hate. What's worth marveling here is the way that Joseph tells his own story. Far too often we're ashamed of telling our stories of pain and hurt. We think that we're the only people who have suddenly found themselves in a situation where we ask ourselves, how did I end up here? What did I do? What did I do to be treated this way, to be hurt so badly? And we often hide those stories, those points of pain. They bring us lots of shame and guilt. We don't know what to do about them. But Joseph chooses, to narrate his own harrowing situation as though God is somehow involved. And that doesn't happen too much these days. It's hard work. These days we automatically assume that if something bad happens to us, if we experience some kind of suffering, that that immediately equals the absence of God or God's favor. And this is a story that turns on over and over in our head. But God's job is not to stop bad things from happening to us. God's job is to stay present in them and to keep on being God, creating whole worlds out of total chaos, breathing life into places of dust and taking the unfathomable wreckage of our lives and making something fresh and new out of them in spite of us. Many of the earliest interpreters of the Bible pointed to, of all the characters in the Old Testament, that Joseph was the one that seems most like Jesus because he's the one who chooses forgiveness. And we know, hopefully... Mm -hmm. The power of forgiveness. We see it in the Joseph story. We see it in the Jesus story. Forgiveness is this powerful act. It's an act of self-love. It's an act of freedom. Not only of setting those who have hurt us free, but setting ourselves free from the hurt itself. It is a process. It is difficult. It is messy. And it's not like you can read a book or a pamphlet and figure it out. Sometimes it takes a lifetime. But it's powerful because if you've ever experienced the power of forgiveness, you know its ability to set free, to liberate, not only from guilt and the weight of the past and hurt and sadness, but from shame and hurt and the power that the past often has in our lives. Each one of us, every one of us, All of our families, our sibling groups, our communities, the organizations we work with and work for have stories of failure and stories of frailty. However, when we tell these stories, when we offer these stories with vulnerability and an eye to healing and to reconciliation, we can take the horrible things of our lives And show that sometimes life doesn't turn out the way we expect it to. But how we tell our stories, like the way that Joseph tells his story, allows us an opportunity to tell the story of our lives that includes God and our horrible situations, the truth of our lives, and wraps them in God's loving intention. And that matters. This week I've been looking for stories of forgiveness because I find them so powerful. Stories of people like the family of the eight people who were murdered in uh, South Carolina in a church at a Bible study when a person, a black church, when a person who considered himself a white supremacist went and conducted the Bible study over an hour and prayed with them, and as they were praying, pulled out a pistol and shot eight people dead. And the most amazing thing is that when he was arrested and brought before the judge, the family were there. And you would expect them to be angry and wanting to jump the table, to literally put their hands around his neck. And one by one, each of the family members, the mothers, the sisters, the brothers, the pastor's wife who was there leading the Bible study, what they wanted to say is, We forgive you. This is like 10 days after the event. We forgive you. And they didn't say it flippantly, it was no easy task. Some of them said it through tears of sorrow and some of them screamed it with anger. Well, it was clear that their faith had taught them their whole lives that this was the moment that forgiveness mattered the most. These stories abound, these stories of forgiveness. We no doubt have them ourselves. Of how somebody's, somebody's grace and love to forgive the things that we've done or that own, our own desire to forgive those who have hurt us has led to powerful moments of deep humanity. The story from the Old Testament, thousands of years old, prefigures the story we read of Jesus who's gathered around a table the night before he's supposed to be arrested with his friends. He shares his life with them. And one of them will betray him. And the rest of them will run and hide when it matters most. And he says, my life is for you. That's what we celebrate month in and month out when we celebrate communion. And on the cross, we have those words, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Some of the last words of God incarnate are about the power of forgiveness about how it must become something we embrace, even if it's difficult. May God give us the grace and the power to embrace the power of forgiveness when it comes our way, those opportunities. And to God be the glory this morning. Amen and amen.